This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have another news update from the NBC studios. It is the March 3rd, 1942 NBC News of the World, offering updates from Europe, Asia, and North America. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. So thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ladies and gentlemen, here now are our staff reporters ready with reports of news in the countries to which they are assigned. And the first news this morning comes to us from London, England. This is Robert St. John in London. The Dutch here in London have just announced that the government of the Dutch East Indies has abandoned Batavia and has moved to the city of Bandoing at the southern tip of the island. The reason given is that Bandoing can be more easily defended. We've also learned here this morning that the Japs have made bombing and machine gun raids on two airports in western Australia and that the position in Java is now critical. Dutch reserves are being rushed up to the threatened areas in fleets of taxicabs. One military writer says that the departure of General Wavell from Java is an ominous sign of what is likely to happen on that Dutch island, and that it's also an indication that India is next on the list. News that the United States will send a mission to India to help in the defense of that land of riches gets big headlines here in London. It's just been officially and authoritatively stated here in London that we here in England will really have to tighten our belts now, that food is going to be much scarcer, that we must do without some of the commodities we're now getting. But they say no one will go hungry in England, that there will still be enough food so that the public's health will not be affected. It's also said that the severest penalties possible will be meted out to black market racketeers. Today's London newspapers give big headlines to the reorganization of the American army and to American demands for an offensive. There are plenty of editorial writers here who join in the call, let's attack. One of them says, we've got a minister of defense, now let's have a minister of offense. There's a rising clamor over here again for another front, for action. One paper says the merits of the offensive have been written wide over the face of the globe. And another paper quotes Marshal Foch's famous words in the last war. My right is driven in. My left is giving ground. The situation is excellent. I'm attacking. 
And by that attack, Foch saved Europe in the Battle of the Marne. The paper winds up by saying that England must get into the mood for attack. If you were to climb to the top floor of a dormitory at Cambridge University, you'd find the words Peter of Yugoslavia painted on one of the doors. Yes, little King Peter, who ruled Yugoslavia for a few days last year while his army fought the Nazis. Today, the tall 18-year-old boy made his first public appearance at a meeting to celebrate the opening of Anglo-Yugoslav Week. After it's all over, he'll return to his status as just another student at Cambridge. The first real king who's ever been an undergraduate at the famous university. Peter hopes someday to go back to his own country and sit on the throne again. But in the meantime, he's working hard at his studies, especially interested in a course on the economics of Soviet Russia. Besides all his studies, he has to take time off occasionally to attend to royal business. For he is, after all, still king of Yugoslavia head of the government in exile here in London. This boy, whose father was assassinated in France in 1934, is principally interested in helping to shape the world of the future, the world in which there will be no wars or jealous little states fighting each other. And of course, he has a burning interest in the guerrilla fighting which still continues in the hills of his own country. That fight which is being led by General Mihailovich. Peter says the general has about 100,000 guerrilla warriors still in action, but that now they're finding it difficult to get ammunition and supplies. When it was suggested that Mihailovich be named Peter's minister of war, the boy king quickly agreed. It's the least we can do, Peter said, to encourage the fight against the invader and to discredit the quisling government. Peter grinned as he told how one of the quislings is a man named Yonich, who used to be one of Peter's teachers, at the royal palace back in Belgrade. Peter is now convinced that that man was a paid Nazi agent. The boy king remembers how Janic used to lecture to him about the great qualities of the Nazis and how the Anglo-Saxon and the Italian races were decadent, finished. Peter ended up the interview by a declaration of his faith in the future. Yugoslavia, he said, tomorrow will again be the master of her own destiny. And now this is Robert St. John in London, returning you to New York. And here in New York, we have the following dispatch from Moscow. On two widely separated fronts, the Soviet war machine is grinding ahead. Those thousands of trapped German soldiers in the Staraya Russa sector face starvation or annihilation or both. Captives admit that the food situation is becoming critical and Red Airmen are frustrating German efforts to supply the encircled men from the air. Meanwhile, that German pincer that has been locked almost around Leningrad since early last fall is gradually being pried loose. Beleaguered Russian troops are thrusting out from Leningrad, and Moscow says that 1,200 Nazis have been killed in this action alone during the past two days. And then, in addition, streams of Russian forces are rolling out to the front from Moscow. Now, there has been no announcement of heavy reinforcements moving toward the front. And there's no comment in Moscow on a story from Switzerland last night, which quoted Berlin sources as saying the Reds were launching the greatest attacks of the war. But men are marching through the snowy streets of Moscow, singing Red Army songs with their long overcoats swishing almost to the ground. There are all kinds of equipment, from portable stoves to trench mortars, and their march is swift and orderly, through lines of the special militia that guard the Soviet capital from possible parachutists. Now, presumably, 
These fresh troops are being rushed to the fronts on three sides of Moscow, near Kharkov in the Ukraine, in a great pincer around Smolensk and the Central Front, and finally, and most important, to the Storaya Russa sector below Leningrad, where the Russians are hacking away at that trapped German army of 90,000 men. And now for news of fighting in the Far East, reported by our newsroom in San Francisco. We are unable to establish contact with Sydney, Australia this morning. However, here is the news of the Far East fighting fronts from the San Francisco newsroom. The Netherlands East Indies High Command announced today that the Japanese troops had made no advance since Sunday in any of the three landing areas of Java. The communique declared that Allied troops were showing splendid offensive spirit and were in close contact with the Japanese. It added that a Dutch submarine sank a large enemy tanker off the coast of the beleaguered island. In none of the three regions of Java where the enemy landed troops during the night of Saturday-Sunday has the enemy succeeded in advancing since the infiltration which was carried out in the course of last Sunday. On various points, our troops who are showing a splendid offensive spirit are in close contact with the enemy. During an attack on an enemy-occupied airfield, some ten Navy Zero fighters which were about to take off were machine-gunned and put out of action, including their crews. The communique said Allied bombers scored direct hits on two Japanese transport ships of 10,000 and 8,000 tons off the coast of Java. It added that a bomb exploded among three seaplanes which were about to take off and two were destroyed. Batavia, Java's capital, earlier today, said a huge new invasion armada of about 70 or 80 ships was sailing down upon Java. These transports were expected to begin unloading within a few hours, it was reported. Continuous relays of the United States and other bombers were said to be meeting the Japanese with storms of explosives 50 to 60 miles north of Java. Many Japanese warships are reported escorting the transports, and warships of the United Nations forces have gone into action. Greatly extending their operations against Australia's northwestern coast, Japanese planes in almost simultaneous attacks today struck at airdrome facilities and grounded planes in the towns of Wyndham and Broome. The naval base port of Darwin was the first point on the Australian mainland to feel Japanese air blows. These latest raids represent a sweep of 700 miles to the west of Darwin on the coast of Australia nearest the Netherlands East Indies war zone. Thousands of Australians were liable to a labor draft today on army terms and at army pay as the Commonwealth enforced drastic new measures to gird against an invasion thrust its leaders believe may not be far distant. The new wartime edicts were aimed at profiting from the lessons Australia has learned from the war in the Pacific so far, the urgent need for fast, uninterrupted and plentiful production, and for precision in military cooperation. Besides calling civilians for compulsory service, the government also abolished five major holidays and welded the Australian Imperial Force, the famous volunteer army, into one unit with the militia and the permanent garrison. And that's the news from here. And now for News at Home, reported by the newsroom in Washington. Good morning, folks. This is Earl Godwin speaking to you this morning. 
tell you or to suggest to you that when two plain-spoken Americans without any frills or laboratory experimentations too profound, propound, get up and talk like battling Don Nelson and General George Marshall yesterday and last night, it gives everybody the hopeful idea that perhaps after all we're going to really do something about winning this war. Well, Nelson simply called for the use of all the time there is. 168 hours a week, at seven days a week, at 24 hours a day for all the machines, and to boost America's production thereby at the rate of 25%, that is to do one-fourth more than we believed we could do with all steam up and going ahead like mad anyhow. Nelson puts this thing on the same basis as any soldier. He doesn't waste any time with frills and fancies, and be sure that to be sure that nobody loses anything in the way of gains or this or that. He just says that the enemy machine guns are going 168 hours a week against us, and our gun machines ought to go at the same speed, same rate. And I think Nelson will probably have done more to get labor and industry together than all the high-priced boards, specialists, consultants, liaison men, and propagandists combined. General George Marshall's simple statement was in a letter to Green Mountaineer Austin, Senator from Vermont, and this was in it. The time has now come when we must proceed with the business of carrying the war to the enemy and not permit the greater portion of our armed forces and our valuable materiel to be immobilized within the continental United States. This, of course, is strong and simple mode of expression of a simple and strong soldier who has had considerable to do with the American ideals now beginning to show in the war against the Axis. Because I think from now on, you will see American attack predominate over the idea of the British bulldog defense, even if that is getting a few changes, as Robert St. John hinted. But the production program is important. And it's something which is going to take the rubber out of your girdles and make a lot of people sore because they can't live the life of Riley. But think now what it means to the enemy. The threat of total war, total American war production puts a sinking feeling into the pit of the sacred stomach at Tokyo. If you could read all the stuff that emits from Tokyo, you would read a vast lot of lies and terrifically tall tales. They're boasts of military and naval victories. But for inside home consumption in Japan, there is also really a grave word of caution. They have a lot of gloating over victories, but I understand that some admiral, I don't know his name, told the Tokyo newspapers to remember that the enemy is doing his best, that's us, to defeat Japan, and that he is strong and that he fights well. Ignorant and irresponsible persons who say he is weak must be suppressed, said this admiral. The country must work with the expectation that war will last for 10 or even 100 years. That's a Japanese admiral trying to ready himself, ready the people for a long war. And German propaganda addressed to this country contains a hint that Hitler has no desire to conquer America. Radio propaganda speakers who get their stuff into America from Berlin advise us to keep our war material at home. That's what George Marshall said we shouldn't do. The German propaganda is to pile it up for a great crushing blow, which we should deliver, they say, at Germany's ally, Japan. But meantime, Germany seems to be readying herself to attack and take Iceland, which would put them on our front door. Submarines and wolf packs are, are infesting our waters, and 
Most Americans of the 100%, all wool and a yard wide, are now taking a part of the move to wipe Nazism off the face of the earth and carry the war to Berlin, for instance, to which city many of us think it should have been carried in 1918. And that's all from Washington at this time. And the report from Washington ends this morning's roundup of the news, reported by Robert St. John from London, our newsrooms in San Francisco and New York, and Earl Godwin from Washington. For the latest news, keep tuned to this station. This is the National Broadcasting Company.